Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to another episode of the How to Adventure podcast. On this episode, we are going to talk about my experience at the Oregon Eclipse Festival. The Symbiosis, Hadra, all these different gatherings came together this year to put on a festival at the Big Summit Prairie outside of Prineville, Oregon. Right in my backyard, really. And for me, it was kind of a crazy deal. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go. Wasn't sure if it would be a good time. I mean, I can party with the best of them, but seven days, I wasn't quite sure. So let's get right into it. Here's a track from my favorite concert that I saw, Polish Ambassador. such a sick song I love that okay so if I'm gonna talk about my experience at the Oregon Eclipse Festival I think it's only fitting that we talk about how much of a cynic I was to begin with like I said I can party with the best of them but I wasn't sure if I wanted to spend seven days partying that seems like a long time I'm really bad at taking vacations I'm bad at sitting still I'm bad at relaxing. I can relax only once I've really earned it and my legs hurt. So going into this, well, first of all, let's just say the reason that I was going to go was because Chris Hoyt, you know him as my partner in crime from Spain, Morocco, France, Brazil, Chile, Peru. Um, He had been to Symbiosis last year. Symbiosis is a festival in California music fest, lifestyle fest. And he had told me such great stories and that he loved it so much and he really wanted me to go, so he bought me a ticket. I know, what a pal. So once he bought me a ticket, I was pretty much set. I was going to go, right? I had to go. If he was going to spend 450 bucks on my behalf, I was pretty much locked in. Well, when I told my wife that Chris had bought me a ticket, she was livid that I had made some kind of plan that she wasn't invited into, which wasn't necessarily true, but wasn't completely untrue. So we started wheeling and dealing like we always do, and she found an opportunity with some of our friends to volunteer for a local brewery that was going to serve beer at the festival. And that was great. That was great. That got her a free ticket, and now she was going. Well, they needed more volunteers so my wife got our neighbors who are some of our best friends to volunteer and our friend Kuru to volunteer and then my friend from Louisiana called and asked if we were going and we said yeah we got a job for you don't buy a ticket so he volunteered and before you knew it we had a three-car caravan of my closest friends heading out to this festival. Chris Hoyt obviously was flying in from Maui 
and taking an RV out there. So the setup was looking pretty good. And I wasn't totally certain that I was going to survive seven days of partying. But I was going to try. I was kind of in it at this point. And I was kind of a skeptic about the eclipse. This whole festival is based around the eclipse, which seems so rare. And the hype that was around the eclipse was just massive. So much hype. Hype on, on all fronts. Hype on, wow, it's such an amazing celestial event. Hype on, wow, there's so many people going to come to Oregon. You know, I can't remember the exact figure. I think it's something like two-thirds of the American population lives within one day's drive of the path of totality. So there was a, just a huge, huge, um, massive amount of the population who was going to make a effort to get into this path of totality. And of course, our beloved Central Oregon was right in the heart of it. So I was kind of a skeptic saying, you know, this is going to be two minutes of totality, you know, like, yeah, like the sun is going to get covered up by the moon. Who gives a shit? And nothing's going to change. It's not a big deal. Why are all these people spending their life savings, burning all these resources traveling, um, yada, yada, yada. Um, I think that criticism is much easier than creating, and I was definitely critiquing the entirety of the situation. I also, I would, I would not poop in a porta potty um, That's not my preferred way of waking up, let's say that. So, the thought of being in uh, one place with 50,000 people, which, you know, this the festival sold 34,200 tickets, and then the supporting vendors and the supporting staff and everything, I think it rounded out to just under 50,000 people at the Big Summit Prairie. Um, I was also a cynic because with festivals like this, you get a lot of hippies, you get a lot of people talking about spirituality, which... I'm an anti-mystic. You get a lot of people talking about the environment and and how we're all going to gather to talk about the spirituality of the Big Summit Prairie. And the whole time I was thinking, no, you're totally lying to yourselves because we are going to fuck the Big Summit Prairie up. We're going to ruin it. 50,000 people camp in there in this huge festival. We're going to totally destroy the nature of that place, which in hindsight we did. We totally did. Was it worth it? We'll get to that. So, planning for the thing, I am decided to get, in, get on board here wholeheartedly with my friends. Figured I could definitely make a good time of it. And I kind of initially set my goals for enjoyment here. I've talked on this podcast a lot about controlling your expectations, accepting challenges so that you can succeed in them. And so my expectations were that I was going to party a little bit and that everyone around me was going to party a lot. But I set my goal to enjoy myself in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this event that I was a skeptic and a cynic of, which in hindsight 
was the right thing to do. I ended up having a great time, but we'll get to that. So to prepare for this thing, of course, we have to buy all kinds of groceries because we're going to spend seven days camping. And I ended up making a couple huge batches of baba ganoush, making a bunch of different hummus combinations, cooking a bunch of potatoes so that we could have breakfast every day. Um, we, we spent hundreds of dollars getting ready for this thing, and I just imagined that everyone was doing that. And so as the gas stations in Bend started to run out of gas, Fred Myers and two other gas stations ran out of gas two days before the um, festival started because people were kind of in a panic. I just couldn't help but think of the massive amount of resources and energy that was going into what I called a giant party. So here I am still cynicking pretty hard. But as it got closer and my friends got more excited and we got everything ready, I was got excited. I got excited just to camp with my friends. You know, I love camping and I love my friends. So I figured I could definitely have a good time. So the day comes. Here's the crew. The crew is me and my wife, Cheetah. It's my girl. The dog has to stay home on this one. Um, and then we have Court and Morgan, my neighbors. Then we have Kuru, who's my longtime adventure buddy. And then we have Chadwick. He's from Louisiana. He's a ER surgeon, which is an interesting person to have around. Because <laughs> if we talk about cynics, he's a deep, dark executioner who doesn't want anyone to go to the hospital until they're almost dying. Or dead. <laughs> and um, we had our friend from Mexico. His name is Diego. Diego is an engineer for Phillips. He lives in Chicago. And we all loaded up in a caravan. And we left my house at 1.30 p.m. on Wednesday. The Google Maps said that it should take us 1 hour 58 minutes to arrive at the Big Summit Prairie. And as we drove, I, of course, I... I uh, took us down the back roads to avoid as much traffic as we could, which drove us on Millican Road way out in the boondocks, which was super nice and pretty. But in about an hour and a half of driving, we ran into what seemed to be a perpetual bumper-to-bumper -bumper line, and we were dead stopped. And, whoa, this is what I kind of predicted. This is what I hate. I hate traffic. Can't can't handle traffic. Oh, I'm so bad at that. I don't think anyone should be good at that. I try to set up my life so that I don't have to sit in traffic and that I spend my time doing the things I love and not the things I hate. So I try to avoid traffic like the plague. And here I am fully accepting the fact that I might be in traffic for the next unforeseeable future hours and hours, right? Word I get from one of the guys who's kind of managing the traffic is that the line is 25 miles long and it's at a dead stop. Whoo! Whoa, man. Anywho, the first three hours that we're sitting there in traffic, we go maybe half a mile. Okay? And I'm in the car with Diego, and Diego's an engineer, so first thing I do is as we sit there 
in the car and just every 20 minutes move 100 feet, I start using the power poles that are on the side of the road to estimate distance. And then I use the clock to estimate time. And so I can give ourselves a little speed. Estimated speed. Well, by my calculations, we were going less than half a mile an hour, which at 25 miles, do the math, yeah, that's 50 hours of line that I was foreseeing. I was like, oh shit. 50 hours of line, that's not good. This is post-apocalyptic traffic levels. And so I warn everyone in my caravan, we might be in this line for a long time. Don't idle your car. Wait until the line moves a substantial distance to start your car, drive, park, shut your car back off. Because if we are in this line for a day, running your car out of gas is a very real possibility. So... Yeah, like I said, first three hours, half a mile. But, you know, it was okay. You know, we had a three-car caravan. We had a bunch of us that were all friends, and we were a four-car caravan. And we had all kinds of supplies, so we kind of crack out the cooler, and we start drinking some beers and hanging out on the side of the road and throwing the Frisbee and yada, 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 hanging out. Well, as time goes on, this model kind of seems like it's not going to work. You know, I recalculate our speed over and over and over. We actually start making more progress, but still, we have been six hours in this line and we've gone two and a half miles of what is an estimated 25. After six hours, the mood kind of turned and things were starting to go downhill for everyone involved. Our cars were all Tetris packed. We didn't really want to dismantle the cars, rip them apart to get to dinner. We didn't want to rip them apart to get our comfortable chairs out. So we're kind of just stuck in this leeway, in this, um, not leeway, that's not the word. We're kind of stuck in this ambiguity of wanting to get out and set up and cook something to eat and also not wanting to do that and knowing that in 20 minutes we're going to have to move a quarter mile. Long story short, from the time we hit the back of the traffic to the time we got to our campsite, 15 hours. 15 hours! Holy shit! It turns out why we had to wait so long was a number of compounding factors. Number one, some retard took his RV, pulled it off the road on a really sheep, uh, really steep shoulder and literally rolled it at zero miles an hour into the trees and ripped the RV to pieces. The Wi-Fi at the box office ran out, so they were having a hard time getting people admitted into the festival. And then as you can imagine, you've got all kinds of hippies from all over the place driving their dilapidated piece of shit cars on a two-lane road. So in the heat of the day and the stop-and-go traffic, these vans are breaking down left and right, blocking the lane of traffic with very little recourse for the rest of the cars to get around them. And so we just have non-stop problems 
that in hindsight we could have avoided by driving three hours around to Mitchell and down and around on the Forest Service roads, but we didn't know that at the time. So we get to camp at 6 a.m. At the point that we pull into camp, I am just brain dead. I don't care. I am just frustrated and tired and trying to sleep in the front seat of this car. And thankfully, Diego had the wherewithal to say, no, this is right now is really important time. We need to make some really good decisions because we're not going to move camp tomorrow. And Diego led us into the trees, which was a highly coveted space to be. And we camped out in the trees so that, you know, Big Summit Prairie is just this huge grassland. It's probably 50 square, 50 square miles. So the shade in the trees on the edge of the prairie was the best decision. And thank you, Diego, for leading all four cars in the caravan into the trees to set up camp. Well, we set up camp like zombies, put our, put our beds out. And slept until 9.30, which is not very long. But we woke up as a group. We were happy to be there. It was beautiful, bright, sunny day out. We set up the rest of our camp with the tents and the tarps and the shades and the tables and the stoves and yada, yada, yada. And we cook ourselves some breakfast, drink some coffee, start making jokes, start planning out our first day at the festival. And before you know it, we fed ourselves. We're kind of resting passively. We are not sleeping, but we are resting. And finally, we head into the festival. I would consider this an adventure for me. Because it is, there's some level of risk, which is not physical. It's not that you will die. The risk for me was that I'll waste my time. The risk for me was that I would miss out on doing other things. There was a plan and a project that Zach Doliak, my photographer friend, and I had pitched to Keen where we would set up this high line, get a 1000 millimeter lens on his camera, and we were going to do a backlit high line shot, right? And you're, I'm sure you saw that Chris Burkard and Doliak, they all did it, but kind of half-assed way at Smith Rock and... You know, but I didn't want to cancel my festival plans because Chris had bought me the ticket. My wife was going. We could use some some good quality time together as a family, and I didn't want to cancel. So I decided that going to the festival was the thing, right? And so my risk was fear of missing out. My risk was wasting my time. My risk was just drinking and partying and doing drugs and bullshit that I don't really have priority or time for in my life. And the unknown outcome was, will I have a good time? Will it be worth it? We're spending a lot of time and money on this thing. So is it going to be worth it? I had to accept the challenge that I was going to have to actively work to be patient, to be grateful to be present and cheery and to focus on enjoying my time. And I accepted that challenge. 
So the first day we go into the festival as a group and we very quickly realize that there's no cell phone reception. We have limited radios. So staying together as a group is difficult because there's so many people in such a massive venue and so many things to see, as well as getting the group back together is impossible. The only way you can get the group back together is when you wake up at 9.30 in the morning when the sun beams in on camp and rustles everybody out of their sweaty tents. That's how we regroup. So every night when we go into the festival, it's kind of rolling the dice. Who you're going to end up with? Are you going to be separated from the group and exiled into the 50,000 person crowd with 15 stages DJs and bands playing 24 hours a day, all kinds of art installations, all kinds of experiential things, slack lines everywhere, a big lake to swim in. There's some things to do in there. Can you stay with a group? That's tough. That's tough. So, I don't want to give you a play-by-play here. That would take forever. But day one... Act one, we go straight to the lake. Let's go swimming in the lake. And at this point, day one, there's probably only 15,000 people there. And it seems really nice and calm. Not everything is finished. The the event organizers are kind of still scrambling to put some of the stages together even. And it seems kind of pre-apocalyptic in that way. Everyone's scrambling to get ready. We go for a swim in the lake... And I kind of think to myself, wow, this might be pretty nice. Having this lake here, that's kind of a game changer. It's a big-ass lake, which, thank God, because 50,000 people trying to take a dip once a day, it seems like it's going to turn into the Ganges with turds floating around in no time. But as time went on, I relaxed a little bit. We use Diego as our guide because Diego goes to festivals all over the world. He's a raver. He knows how it's done. He also, since he's an engineer for Philips, he brought these little super lightweight, really cool, like 36-inch long LED strands that have their own included little tiny battery pack. And so, pro tip, next time you go to a rave you got to put these lights on your head so you can find your group. Put light on your head so they can find you and put lights on their head so you can find them. <laughs> pro tip. Rave pro tip from Area in the Air. Um, but one thing led to the other. We started going to concerts. Luckily, all my friends that I was there with were working at the bar, so the beer was cheap and plentiful. And the people running the bar are my old neighbors who are great friends of mine, so I know people all over the place. I'm kind of in my backyard, so even though there's 50,000 people, I'm going to bump into my friends here and there, which was nice. There's slack lines all over the place, so I get to practice my slack lining every day and stay in somewhat of shape. Also, we're walking 7 to 10 miles a day. Um, I didn't personally record that, but my friend had a Fitbit and was telling me his second day he did seven his third day he did 11 his fourth day he did eight and a half so somewhere between seven and 12 miles a day we're walking around this venue and 
I am also just dancing my ass off. I figured that if I was going to go to this party and spend a bunch of time in the desert, I was going to dance. I find that dancing and slacklining are very, very similar. The muscles that you use to get low and to keep your balance while dancing are very similar to those standing up on a slack line when you're crouched down and you have to keep this very finite balance and slowly raise your body up. It's also a, you know, I like slack lining for the movement. It's a beautiful, beautiful movement that you do. And dancing is like a, it's a blank canvas as to what movements you're going to do. Slacklining kind of demands a certain movement and it demands that you do the right thing at the right time where, where dancing, you get to make up everything. If you want to, you know, swing dance to dubstep, that's fine. Go feel free. Um, if you want to try to trick line on a long high line, you'll fall right off of it, right? So there's a big difference, but there are a lot of similarities. I also find that if I'm breaking it down on the dance floor and getting really low, it stretches my knees and it keeps my muscles in my knees really strong, which slacklining your knee, ankle, and lower leg muscles have to be super, super strong to control the line. And I find that dancing is a really good way to stay in shape in that way. Knee flexibility on a slack line is super important. And so as I dance, I kind of am exercising consciously and focusing um, at times on my flexibility and my strength. Um, and so I, I was aware of that this whole time. Let's see, what next? As we got closer and closer to the eclipse itself, it seemed that the eclipse was not even a thing. People had, people weren't here for the eclipse. They were here for the concert. They were here to party. They were here to drink. They were here to do drugs. But the morning of the eclipse, I woke up, made some breakfast, made some coffee. And as soon as, and even before the eclipse began, I started using the eclipse glasses to look into the sky to see if I could see the moon approaching the sun. But anyone who tried to wear those eclipse glasses knows that they are so dark that the only thing you can see is the sun. So I wasn't able to see anything until that first partial eclipse where the moon just started covering up the very small sliver of the sun. And it got bigger and it got bigger and it got bigger and then we decided to go back into the festival to enjoy the clips with the people who had gathered there with us. Which, as the cynic and skeptic of this whole thing, was kind of like a toss-up. I was, at that point, I was saying to myself, okay, you can't sit here and camp and watch it because that is undermining the commitment that you've made to try to enjoy this. So we went in and... The event organizers had built what they called the temple. And the temple was these two huge structures on top of the hill on the far side of the lake that were made out of massive, massive timbers, like 36-inch diameter 
trees as the foundation of this thing. And it was two stories tall with these huge towers out of the top with elaborate, elaborate woodwork. Very, very beautiful structures, right? So we decided that that was where we wanted to witness the eclipse from. And as we walked over there in a huge line of people, because everyone's going to the temple to watch this thing, and I keep using my eclipse glasses to peek up at the sun and see where the eclipse is at, I couldn't help but have some cynicism creep back into me. I said, okay, here we are in a big crowd. The sun is being eclipsed by the moon. Woo freaking who. Well, we get up by the temple. I'm with my wife and Kuru at this point because the rest of the crowd, the plan was that we would stay out all night and stay up for the, the eclipse. Well, we got separated from the crowd, or not from the crowd, from the crew. The crew had my wife's extra clothes, her jacket and all that stuff. So as the temperature dropped, we really had no choice but to head back to camp and catch some Zs, which in hindsight was totally the play because the rest of the crew was really tired and all strung out from <laughs> trying to stay up all night to witness this thing. So as we arrive at the temple, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, 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 here we go again. Well, I find myself in a crowd of about 10,000 people. The eclipse is getting closer and closer to totality. And as it gets closer to totality, to totality, I start feeling the temperature change. As a paraglide pilot, I'm very in tune with what the air is doing, and I can feel a downdraft. It is sink above me. The air is coming down vertically onto us, and it is cooling rapidly. The light is something that I've never witnessed before. It is some kind of how do I say, a lunar shadow, obviously. And it's like a gray light. It's like almost like a gray sunset. Then the closer and closer it gets to totality, as I stand in this crowd of 10,000 plus people, it begins to silence them. People go from chatting, from yelling, from hanging out, from milling around, it stops everyone in their tracks. It stops them from talking. It stops them from chatting. It stops them from screaming and woohooing. And it stops me. The moment that the moon fully eclipsed the sun... I began to how do I say my cynicism washed away very quickly being in a crowd of 10,000 people is not something I typically choose but being in a crowd of 10,000 people to witness a celestial event the power of the event that silenced the crowd also silenced my cynicism, also silenced my skepticism. And I realized for a moment why we were all there. Everyone's motivations were different, but I did see a 
powerful, powerful motivation of gathering with so many people to realize our humanity and our place in the universe on earth here. I was moved. I had a hard time breathing. My legs kind of were weak and I braced myself on my wife and Kuru. I think a tear came down my cheek. I looked around at the people. I looked around at the light. The light was something I will never forget. There were sunset colors in the sky in a place that I had never seen them. The light was this gray. It wasn't darkness. But it wasn't sunlight. I was on a hill, so in the distance I could see the sunlight hitting the forest. The temperature continued to plummet. I have never on earth felt a natural change in temperature so drastic. I would say nearly 20 degrees in 15 minutes or 20 minutes. The crowd was speechless. I was speechless. It made me so grateful to be there with my wife and Kuru, who's one of my greatest, my lifetime, some of, one of my greatest adventure partners. I think that the gradient between my expectations, my cynical and skeptical opinions before to my realization of the power and wonder of the event and the social, universal, and um, philosophical, almost, implications of gathering there, the gradient of those two things moved me to tears. I don't know what else to say about that. I'm glad I was a cynic. I'm glad I had really low expectations of the celestial event. Because when it came, I was in a position to be wrong. Which is a good position. It's only a good position if you're able to change your mind and observe your thoughts for what they are. I think it was a good lesson for me. The rest of the day was quite enjoyable. I was really grateful for my friends. I was grateful for all the experiences that we had had during the week. I was grateful for my wife and my marriage and my dog and the absolutely, unbelievably incredible life that I have led And I was really, really glad that I went. After that, we started talking about our departure. 
and our departure time and how that would affect our travel time to get home. And it ended up, we left at about 10.30 p.m. And we got home at 12.15. That's right, folks. What took us an hour and 50 minutes to drive took us 17 hours on the way in. But I don't regret it. I think we were one of the few groups that came out net positive on cash because all my wife and all of our friends had made money during the event. A unique proposition for most festival goers. And I think one of the most important lessons that I learned was that managing your expectations is sometimes, I don't want to say futile, but managing your expectations to a T is sometimes futile. Sometimes you have expectations and that's okay. Your thoughts are your thoughts. Your expectations are your expectations. Expecting success is a recipe for disappointment. But being open to your expectations being wrong is really, really important. And I'm so glad that I was so fucking wrong that the eclipse itself took me from cynicism to gratitude in an instant. And it bitch slapped me and said, maybe you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Maybe I ought to just shut up and go along for the ride and see what happens. I was glad that I went along for the ride. Another interesting thing that I took away from the festival itself was that at the festival, people don't always tell you their real name. They'll tell you their festival name. They'll tell you their party name. They'll tell you who they want to be. They kind of get to reinvent themselves. There's a beautiful thing in meeting new people. You get to reinvent yourself every time because when people don't know who you are, you get to show them who you want to be. It is a conscious decision that you have to make. It is a beautiful opportunity to reinvent and reinstate your identity with new people every time. I also found that shaking hands was hardly a thing there. When you meet someone, you hug them. And when you hug them, you don't just one-armed hug them. You hug them chest to chest, two arms wrapped around their back. And a lot of times you don't even exchange names. So my recommendations are this. My recommendations are these. Grammar moment. I would say you need to hug people. You need to be aware of when someone needs a hug. You need to be aware of when you need a hug. Hugs should be longer than they currently are in our society. Go ahead, squeeze them. 
Since I left the festival, I've started meeting people. They reach their hand out to shake it, and I just hug them, which they think is kind of weird and awkward. What they think is more weird and awkward is when I don't let go of them, and they kind of, they kind of want to pull away, and I hold on to them, and then they're kind of forced to make a decision. Am I either going to put my hands on this person's chest and push them away, or am I going to actually embrace them and hug them? And I haven't had someone push me away yet, but I have had people be reluctant and then hug me in a real way, and then I hug them, and then I let go of them. Uh, It's kind of my way of winning there, and I think it's really good for both people. The other thing is the expectation deal that we just talked about. Expectations are fine, but you have to be ready for your mind to change. You have to be open to that. You have to be willing to examine your thoughts for what they are, which is just your thoughts. Also, you've got to be grateful to your friends. You've got to be grateful to your family. Find the people that share your values. Bring them in. When you find people that don't share your values, get them away from you or get away from them. It's how you make your life good. It's how you optimize your time on this earth. It's how you maximize your impact for good. Hmm. Also, alcohol is a real destructive drug. Addiction is all around us. Accountability to your friends for their drug use is a responsibility that we all have and that we all currently shed. Go ahead, judge your friends, act on those judgments, talk to them about it in a caring, loving, empathetic, and constructive way. And hold them to the accountability that your judgments take you to. Also, if you're going to do that, You're going to have to judge yourself. Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. If you're not looking at yourself, you might as well be dead. I appreciate you listening, and I hope this helps you in some way down the road. I send you my best wishes. If you like this show, share it. That's all I ask. I'm going to be talking more and more about philosophical issues, about principles, about how to live, because I think that it applies to how to adventure. So get ready. I'm going to challenge you more and more and more as time goes on here. So if you're lying to yourself, I would unsubscribe immediately. Love you. Take care.